vaccine in this country has probably killed a few hundred thousand people. And I'll, I'll explain to you why. It's not just a random calculation. I can tell you what's not their motives. It's not your well-being. Now, these people are in positions of power, but in privilege because we put them there to serve in the best interests of, of our, our citizens. What they've done is they've uh, taken that trust and, and have abused us on a genocidal scale. I mean, uh, these are crimes against humanity. Welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. I have Dr. Zev coming to the program. It's Dr. Z Dr. Vladimir Zelenko, and they call him Dr. Zev, and he is just great. He was one of the first doctors in the world to come up with the protocol to a protocol to save people from COVID. And he was in New York, and he was with. Uh, uh, I'm going to explain the whole thing and how everything went down. He ended up talking to. Um, Trump's head of chief of staff and the head of the CDC and the FDA actually and of the NIH and he got nothing but walls from the NIH but from Trump's organization he actually helped Trump when he got COVID and he's been working with different uh, heads of state around the world and he's also working with Governor DeSantis and doing all sorts of great work and he'll talk about his views on all these things as a breath of fresh air, he also wrote the foreword to Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Bregan's book. He, I just got done interviewing Peter Bregan, and if you haven't seen that interview, you really need to see it. It's, it is, it's titled, or the book he came out with is um, Global, The Globalist Predators, We Are the Prey. And it's basically, he's talking about how this whole thing was planned. And I really highly recommend that you go look at that book. You go to wearetheprey.com. And you can see it just citation after citation. It's the proof, 100%. He actually put this, that together for trial, and it ended up turning into a book. But Dr. Zeb wrote the uh, forward for it, one of the forwards for it. There's a couple of them that uh, contributed because it's such a, it's, so it's the fight of our lifetime right now. And the interesting part about Dr. Zeb is he uh, grew up initially in Russia, Ukraine area, and he was under the communist oppression. And so he knows what that's like. He tells some pretty interesting stories about Stalin. Not that he likes Stalin, but that Stalin was a really good character to um, prove the point on. And I don't want to get into too much more. The interview speaks for itself. And I also want to tell you one more thing. I have the $5 Zeolite promo is going this week. If you want to get the hard you can get hard metals out of your system it's one of the only things in the world that works to do this it does it, it it's a detox that gets into your blood system you get nano detox very gentle and you get the hard metals out of your system which is so hard to do it's a great detox product and it's only five dollars right now five dollars just for the shipping and if you've already taken advantage of that maybe a loved one of yours or somebody you know has not please share it because it's a great way to try it. Use it for the whole month. See how it works for you. It's only $5, and the link for that is below. So hopefully you'll try this. It's a great solution for detoxing these hard metals out of your system. So let's get into this amazing 
interview and conversation with Dr. Zev. Hi, Dr. Zev. Thank you so much for joining my program. Thank you so much for having me. I've heard so many good things about you. I just had Peter Bregan on, and he has that explosive book on We Are the Prey, of which you did the foreword on that book. And he said, you know, I really need to talk to you. And I'm, so I'm, I'm excited to have you on because I'm told that you are one of the first people in New York, just in the country, in the world, that was treating COVID-19 properly and saving so many lives. And then you had a very interesting thing happen. Can you talk about what happened in the early days of COVID-19 and how you, you were on the forefront of saving lives? Yeah, so I'm a family physician for the last 20 years in an upstate New York community of around 35,000 people that live in a square mile. It's a very high population density. And uh, in March of last year, first week of March, um, COVID arrived and spread like wildfire. And we had thousands of sick patients. Now, if you remember at that time, there was no treatment except take Tylenol, drink fluids, go home. If and when you get shorter breath, go to the hospital. You'll end up on a respirator. And in some hospitals in Manhattan, they had death rates of over 80%. So that was the treatment model that we had, which I wasn't happy with because these were my patients that I've taken care of for two decades. And someone once told me I'm a family member to 4,000 families. So it was personal to me. I had skin in the game, you know? Yeah. And it's not like uh, COVID chose me because I happened to just be in the worst outbreak in the country in the pre-hospital setting. See, that's, that's the key. I, my job is to keep people out of the hospital, not to treat them when they're in the hospital. That's the, so my orientation is, is always different. It's preventive health, it's, it's early intervention to make recommendations that mitigate risk so that uh, <clears throat> the probability of the patient staying healthy is increased. So when COVID came, I, it was no different for me. I knew that early intervention is the key. Um, and I did research, I looked around how other countries were treating or had treated COVID, like for example, in South Korea, they had been using hydroxychloroquine and zinc in, in the hospital setting with some mild success. And then in, uh, in France, there was a doctor, Dr. Didier Raoul from Marseille, and he was doing research using hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin um, in high risk or patients in the hospital. So I knew all those dr drugs, the drugs that I used for my entire medical career, for example, uh, azithromycin, you may know it as ZPAC, but azithromycin is the most common antibiotic prescribed in my field. And uh, hydroxychloroquine is the safest medication in the history of medicine. We give it to pregnant ladies, ladies and, and nursing mothers and children for rheumatoid arthritis and uh, for malaria prophylaxis, lupus. So these were all drugs that I had used throughout my career. And I said to myself, okay, uh, what do I have to lose? The patients are dying. And I, I started treating them and 
from that point, people stopped going to the hospital. And I, after doing it, like a, after treating a hundred patients or so with successfully and having symptoms start to improve within six hours, um, I said, this is unbelievable. I, with, with the grace of God, I just stumbled across uh, a piece of information. It's probably the most important piece of information in the history of information, because here you have a global pandemic. Uh, fear, global fear has set in. Uh, economies, countries are closed. It was unprecedented. And so I made a video addressed the president because I realized that, I'll give you an, uh, an example. Imagine a, fr a frontline soldier discovers an enemy map and that map tells you where all the soldiers are, where all the enemy is, their weapons. And he realizes that this information could help win the war. Now, we don't have time to go through all the different chain of command. You need to get to, to the five-star general immediately because this will win the war. That's how I felt. I felt like I have information that, and so how does someone like me who's not politically connected reach the most powerful person in the world? It's called YouTube. I asked my son to help me make a video because I had never done one. And I, um, March 21st last year, appealed to the president for help. And 16 hours later, Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, calls me on my cell phone. And he asks, he asks me, um, you know, how he could help. I'm looking for the president. I told him what I was seeing. And he seemed very interested. He gave me, I had his cell number now and then an email. And he asked me to keep him updated. Then um, a few days later, Stephen Hahn, Dr. Hahn, the former um, uh, head of the FDA, calls me on my cell phone. And um, he wants, also wants to know what I was doing. I told him. Then a few days later, the top people at the NIH call me. And I, I tell them. And that's where I hit a brick wall because they had no way of processing information generated in real world data. In other words, not clinical trial data, not something that um, is rigid and structured, but rather information that's generated in the practice of medicine that they didn't even know how to handle it. So that's where um, that needs to be addressed because a lot, a lot of times it's the frontline soldiers that discover the, um, the solution and the solution sometimes evades the pharmaceutical industry and academia. The, um, invited me to do a podcast with him. Oh, who did? Rudy Julian. You, you cut out for a second. Okay, excellent. Yeah, uh, Mayor Julian. And we did a podcast which went absolutely viral. They had the most views of any of his podcasts. And since then, my life has never been the same. I've treated heads of state. Um, I, you know, I, I actually advised the president. I, when, when the president announced that he's taking hydroxychloroquine, he referenced my letter that I sent him um, advising him what I think should be, he should be doing. And, um, and I really, I treated and continue to treat, uh, I'm advising seven governments, uh, you know, how to approach this. And it's very, I, my, my data 
showed an 84% reduction in hospitalization and death if you initiate treatment in high-risk patients within the first few days of symptoms. I'll say that again. Um, well, maybe I'll give you a number. Out of 600,000 dead Americans, we could have prevented 510,000 from dying. Well, now, how did NIH proceed after that? After you I've not, I, told them? Since then, I've never, go never ahead. had any contact with them, nor do I wish to. Um, I find that uh, our governmental agencies have uh, created barriers to access of life-saving information and, and medication. If you look at the NIH recommendations as of today, their recommendations are not to treat COVID unless you're in the hospital and your oxygen is below 92. <laughs> so that, by the way, if anyone just heard that, that is a recipe for death and don't do that. Um, in other words, if you're in the high risk category, let's, let's be loose, over the age of 45 or having any type of chronic medical problems, I'll classify you as high risk and initiate treatment immediately upon clinical symptoms. I don't need a test to tell me what is COVID. My clinical skill and good thorough history and exam is much more accurate than the garbage PCR test. So it's just common sense um, makes all the difference. And, and, for, and by the way, this is no longer just my uh, data, but it's been, uh, this number of 84, 85% uh, reduction in death has been reproduced dozens of times actually by top researchers, the top universities all around the world uh, using various treatment approaches. It's not only hydroxychloroquine. I'm not the hydroxychloroquine doctor. I'm the treat early high-risk patients with zinc and a zinc ionophore doctor. In other words, the, the way the stuff works is it's the zinc that stops the virus from making copies of itself, which is essential to spread. Now, if you inhibit that, then you help your immune system because there's not as much virus, the immune system has time uh, to, to eliminate the virus. Now, the problem with, with zinc, which messes up or a monkey wrench or obstructs, inhibits is a medical term, um, a very important enzyme called RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, which is used by all the COVID viruses and the influenza viruses. I want you to process what I'm saying because I don't want to give everything away, but I, there's an enzyme involved in making copies of the genetic material of all the coronaviruses and all the influenza viruses. And we have a way of inhibiting that. And the way to inhibit that is using zinc. Again, but the problem is zinc is, uh, has a charge. It's a plus two cation. When dissolved in solution, it's, um, it does not pass through uh, cholesterol-like material. And the cell membrane, it's called the biphospholipid uh, membrane, is cholesterol-based. So you have an effective bullet, but it's nowhere to get in on its own. So if I just give you bullets, it's not gonna help you. You need a gun. So it turns out that there's a concept, a class of uh, substances called zinc ionophores. And what, the, what all that means is it's a substance that opens the door in the cell membrane <clears throat> and allows for zinc to be transported from outside the cell inside the cell. 
that's called the zinc ionophore. And there are four of them that are commonly used. One is hydroxychloroquine, the other is ivermectin, the other is quercetin, Q-U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N, and the other is EGCG. Um, I'll talk about the last two. Uh, they're very important a little bit later because they're over the counter. So, um, I, so that gives, uh, it's basically the answer to tyranny. I'll, I'll tell you actually what happened. Um, I was using hydroxychloroquine and, and, and zinc and then antibiotics with, with tremendous success, like I mentioned. And then Cuomo made an executive order restricting access to my patients from getting hydroxychloroquine. So all of a sudden, you know, there's a saying, you, you don't go to war with the army you wish you had, you go to war with the army you do have. And so wishing for hydroxychloroquine access when I don't have it didn't help my patients. I started doing research and I stumbled across something called quercetin. I've never really heard about it before. And um, it's a bioflavonoid, a plant derivative. And it turned, these are NIH studies that uh, if you couple quercetin with vitamin C, it becomes a potent zinc ionophore. In other words, it's a new model of gun. Maybe it's not a 50 caliber machine gun, but it's still, uh, I'll take a 22 caliber pistol if I don't have anything else. I'm just giving you an analogy. So, so no, yeah. And then I, I Google quercetin and I see that this stuff is over the counter. So all of a sudden, I just, uh, it, it was like a, a, a revelation. It was a divine gift. Um, honestly, I just, I, I just leaned back in my chair and I said, this is the magic bullet to circumvent tyranny. Because there's two risk factors to die from COVID. One is the government you live under, and two is the doctor you choose. That's all right, yes. So this, my advice, I'm gonna give practical advice to your listeners around the world. Practical, and that will save your life, potentially, is that you do understand that if you're high risk and you get COVID, you have a higher chance of dying than someone who was healthy and younger. So it, wouldn't it make sense to protect yourself effect, if there was an effective way of preventing getting the virus? And if you do get the virus, treat it immediately upon symptoms and not wait for it to get out of control. Because it's really two parts here. There's, there's the viral infection, uh, which is actually not so bad and, and relatively easy to clear in the right time frame, and then there's the sick and nauseating, life-threatening autoimmune reaction, where your body's immune system is triggered and releases napalm inside your body, causing catastrophic lung damage and blood clots. So the key is to intervene before that happens, because once that happens, that's already a new disease with with mortality rates much higher than you know more than fifty percent. You sure? So. This is what I recommend. Every single home on this planet should have quercetin or EGCG. E EGCG, by the way, is um, a green tea extract. And it's natural, also over the counter. And it's a zinc ionophore, it's another model of gun. So they all use this. If you, can I ask you, if you, if you drink green tea on a regular basis, yes. is that almost like you're taking it on? My recommendation is 
as a grams of EGCG. They're the problem with green tea. How many? I'm sorry, you cut out for a second. How many milligrams? Oh, 100. I have a website okay. that has all these printed uh, protocols you can download for free. Um, so I, I don't want people to uh, get confused on dosing. But, but to answer your question, it's hard to know exactly how much you're getting of anything in a non-regulated fashion. In other words, I don't know how much CG is in, in a cup of tea or it depends on the brand and so on. Sure. So it, yeah, that makes sense. So if, if someone's high risk, I, I, you know, I would be more cautious and make sure that they get a standard recommended dose than take the risk of not doing that. Can I ask you, have you treated anyone that has gotten the vaccine and has then gotten COVID? Uh, yeah. Um, well, my team, we've treated my, my practice, my team, over uh, approaching 6,000 patients with, with COVID. And we've lost uh, out of those 6,000. Let me uh, clarify exactly. I risk stratify patients, so approximately 4,000 of them, I wouldn't treat because I, the statistics are they're all gonna get better without treatment. Uh, anyone who's 18 and under has a 99.998% chance of recovery from COVID without any intervention. It's as close, it's safer than the flu. Yes. So those people I don't need to treat, right? I, I was selective, I would select the, by certain criteria, the patients that I would treat that had on average a 7.5% mortality rate. So I'll give you an example. The first wave, we had 3,000 patients uh, approximately. I, I only treated with medication 1,000. Now, 7.5 of high-risk patients. So the anticipation statistically was 75 dead people because at a death rate of 7.5% and you have 1,000 high-risk patients, you would have expected somewhere in the range of 75 dead people and a multiple in the hospital. Our results were the following. Three, uh, two people had died in that group and 12 others ended up in the hospital for events, but they got extubated and they came home. They all came home. So I just, you know, I'm trying to illustrate that there's a big difference between 75 dead people and three dead people. Well, and don't you think that an and, elderly person that gets anything is at risk of dying just because their their immune system? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it just is what it is once you become in your nineties. So, I mean, if you look at what happened in, in New York, um, it was a bloodbath in the nursing home. So, around twenty thousand nursing home residents died unnecessarily due to bad governance or criminal governments. In my and you know there was a, a beautiful white ship called the Comfort, and parked in the West Side Highway with 5,000 beds capacity, which was sent by the Trump administration to um, to help. And inst instead of sending patients there or to Jacob Javits Convention Center, um, uh, nursing homes were forced to take in patients who were diagnosed with COVID. And I, just to give you a sense of scale, in Pearl Harbor, we lost unfortunately around 3,000 people, a little more than 9-11 also around 3,000 people. And uh, since 1900 going forward, there's been 
there are around 10,000 serial killings. It's around 16,000 people. We in New York, in a matter of three months, lost 20,000 human beings, the most vulnerable of our, of our society who require our protection the most. We lost, we slaughtered 20,000 people unnecessarily due to a criminal negligence. Well, and do you, do you think that that was a planned thing? Because I'm in Minnesota and we had 80% of our people who died were out of nursing homes. And that's because they had the same policy that New York had. And in fact, after New York stopped it, we kept going for two months, sending our sick into the nursing homes. I talked to Piers Corbin in, uh, in England who, who said the same thing. He said that that's what they were doing in England. And so there's various places where they're doing that same policy everywhere. It seems, I'm gonna stay away from conspiracies, but I will say that anything that seemed to be rational and reasonable to do, uh, common sense uh, was suppressed or it wasn't done. Like everything that's counterintuitive was done. And um, telling people don't, be, don't take any medication uh, outside of the hospital, only wait until you go to the hospital. Even that, that's, that's absurd. I mean, no one does that. If you look at the CDC's website, you look at the, the recommendations for the treatment of influenza virus, which is an RNA virus, which is a cousin to the coronavirus. The, the CDC's guidelines are to start antiviral treatment within 48 hours of onset of symptoms because that's when it works. This is the recommendation of the CDC when it comes to influenza virus, but not when it comes to COVID-19. Completely absurd, ridiculous, criminal. So now why are so many doctors sheepishly following the advice still of the CDC? What's your opinion on that? You know, uh, you know what they call someone who graduated last from medical school? <laughs> doctor. I, I agree with that one. So is uh, it that only 10% in any field uh, is good? Uh, is that the whole point? As a doctor, I feel comfortable saying the following statement. Of all the profession, professions, uh, the medical profession has the lowest IQ. <laughs> and m most of the medical profession are like Pavlovian dogs. They've been taught to react, react to stimuli, but not for critical thinking or anal analytic thought. Exactly. And so the people are locked into protocols and, and guidelines from the AMA or all these uh, murderous uh, alphabetic uh, organizations. And so that's a problem and to also, I'm not going to be that hard on the doctors because they got sanctioned, uh, threatened. Uh, their credentials were were threatened. Uh, some of them were threatened with litigation and criminal char charges. So uh, initially, um, there was a lot of fear mongering, trying to dissuade doctors from uh, treating patients outside the hospital. Um, so that's probably a huge part of it. What I'm calling for, uh, I just submitted a, a strategy to reopen the state of Florida to Governor DeSantis. And one of the first things that I'm asking for is the end indemnification of doctors, frontline treating doctors 
uh, from, from litigation because you can't have a frontline soldier who's afraid to pull the trigger. It doesn't work. If the vaccine industry, uh, the, the word vaccine is a legal term. It, it, it basically, the vaccine industry has, there's laws that indemnify the vaccine pharmaceutical companies from being sued for, uh, for negative outcomes. And um, so why can't frontline doctors who are treating, risking everything and have been threatened, we need to indemnify them so that they can practice without fear. So why has our government these government agencies done, and, and I know you don't like to get into conspiracy theories, but at some point, oh no, at some, I do like it. I know it, it, it tends it, to the way the smearing goes. They tend to smear you for connecting dots. But when everybody acts in unison, are they all stupid at the same time, or is it a planned agenda? Yeah. No, in this particular sense, uh, I, I think only maybe 5% of doctors get it um, or get it and have the moral fiber to act on it. Now we do, we do have the, a group of angels, uh, you know, world renowned physicians, Harvard trained, uh, for example, Dr. George Fareed, um, MD, Harvard professor of virology from Harvard, uh, did research at the NIH with Fauci and he went back into clinical practice in uh, underserved area in California and has treated, his, his group has treated probably around 10,000 patients with only, I think, one death you understand? with a variation of my protocol. And he testified in, in the Senate and he uh, accredited the initial uh, work that I had done as the basis for his. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is uh, it's not about um, I personally don't care about accolades. And I think I, I was nominated with a group of other doctors for the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, but to me, it means absolutely nothing, especially since Obama and Arafat got, got it. So. <laughs> hey, I've, I've uh, talked to a lot of people who are nominated for the Nobel Prize who are smeared every day. And there would be no way that they would ever get the Nobel Prize. And as a journalist, no matter what I do, I'll never get a, uh, I'll never get an award because I'm just censored. But keep going. Well, I was, I'm also censored. I got deplatformed from Twitter. Sure. My tweets were yeah. over 10 million. Uh, and then uh, YouTube keeps on taking down my videos. Uh, Facebook put me in jail again. So. Um, you know, I've been, I, I use now Telegram or whatever uh, until they throw me off. But the amount of suppression of the flow of information. I was born in, in the Ukraine and Russia. I, I left that type of tyranny where personal freedoms didn't exist. Government uh, intrusion and censorship and tyranny was the norm. And uh, what I see happening in this country is the movement towards um, a system of governance that through the 20th century resulted in the death of 500 million people. Yeah, yeah. So, go ahead, yeah, I'm sorry. No, I, I, this, is, this is what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about your view on this. 
and how serious it is because the tyranny, I don't understand the tyranny as far as what their motives are completely. I think I do, but um, it goes against their own best. It well, goes against what's but, good for them and their families. So I don't understand why they would continue in some time, you know, in some way. And, and well, I understand that 95% of the doctors don't understand, but there are a percentage of people in the NIH, for example, we have, we have studies from 15 years ago that they knew hydroxychloroquine did what it does. We, they know that chlorine dioxide, which was went through phase three trials in Switzerland, does what it does because they used it for Ebola. They know, Fauci knows that these things can be treated. So, you know, there's more behind this. <laughs> yeah, I, I could tell you um, the, why, what their motives are. I could tell you what's not their motives. It's not your well-being. Now, these people are in positions of power but, and privilege because we put them there to serve in the best interests of, of our, our citizens. What they've done is they've um, taken that trust and, and have abused us on a genocidal scale. I mean, uh, these are crimes against humanity. Have you looked at the vaccine and the spike protein? Have you gotten an opportunity? Because I know you're busy uh, healing patients. Have you, um, first of all, I asked you, and, I, and I'm not sure we didn't really get to that question. Have you had to um, treat people who've had the vaccine and then later have gotten COVID? Um, we've had to treat uh, complications of the vaccine. Um, it's relatively recent. We started when in January, that's less than a half a year, a half a year, let's say of, uh, most of my patients don't get vaccinated because they're my patients and they are properly treated. Uh, yeah, that's part of, uh, you give you know, them the, cons you give them informed consent. I mean, they have to have informed consent. So you need to give them the proper information. Cause if you don't give them informed consent, you're not doing your job as a doctor of which I don't know why all these go ahead. Um, our government and the governments around the world are doing everything in their power to suppress the informed part. And I'll give you an example. Um, so in, in Israel, on a national, on a countrywide scale, the people that live there are being told that it's a, this is an approved substance that's safe. Uh, so that's a lie, because it's not approved by the FDA. It only got an emergency authorization. It may become approved, but it's not approved now. And how can you say something is safe when it has less than a year of human data and we don't know the long-term consequences. I'm hearing commercials here in my own city on my radio station that it, it's safe and it's, it's, it's keeping, they say it's virtually keeping 100% of the people out of the hospital. Um, so the vaccine in this country has probably killed a few hundred thousand people. And I'll, I'll explain to you why. It's not just a random calculation. It's a, or a fear tactic. It's actually more likely the truth. Um, and this, this is the rationale. 
the VAERS system, the well, um, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, government system, um, has around 6,000 deaths associated um, with vaccination of COVID. Um, most of the 40% of the deaths happened within two days of the injection, uh, but it can, it can go out for a few weeks. And um, there was a 2009 Harvard study that showed that only 1% of events are actually reported to the VAERS system. Now I can make an argument that, okay, that may be for, true for rashes, but I'm sure death is reported at a higher rate. And I would agree to that. What, but I could tell you the number is much bigger than 5,000, maybe a 10%, 25% report. And here is my evidence why I say this. Um, I know around 2,000, I'm sorry, two dozen physicians and family members that have lost either a patient or loved one who tried to make a VAERS report. Uh, and after like a half an hour, the report was rejected due to some technicality. So what, what I'm seeing is, and then the VAERS system crashes. And so what I'm seeing is uh, either gross incompetence or willful negligence, but the actual reporting is inaccurate and is um, probably an order or two of magnitude off. Um, so instead of 5,000 being dead, uh, I mean, the numbers could be in the hundreds of thousands. Um, so, I, But even if it's just 6,000, uh, wouldn't it make sense to uh, let loose the CDC, the FDA, uh, who's, who, who are charged with protecting us to investigate th those deaths and to reach a consensus?